2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Thank you thank you again for tuning in to Think About It. Today, I'm going to speak to Ardeth Ashley, whose novel, The Return of the Century, imagines a few more life for Oscar Wilde. Today's episode is about Oscar Wilde, and it focuses on that novel, which Ashley uses to imagine what would have happened if Wilde hadn't really died in 1900, but been spirited away and lived a few more years. It's a gorgeous historical novel. It's highly entertaining, very witty, and at its heart, it has a question of who are we to judge Oscar Wilde today, and it stages an encounter between Oscar Wilde and Sigmund Freud that I thought was one of the greatest things I've read in a long time. I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and do look up this novel called The Return of the Century by Ardith Ashley, which, as I just said, is published by Warbler Press. Thank you again. For tuning in to think about it, and I hope you will enjoy the show about one of my all-time favorites, the great, sublime Oscar Wilde.
2: Good evening, and I want to say welcome and thank you for joining me on the Think About It podcast today, Ardis. Uh, I am here on the telephone with artist Ashley, who is a novelist and a psychoanalyst, and the author of several books. Um, in the Country of the Great King is one novel. The Christ of the Butterflies is another novel set in Venice. And the book that I was completely captivated by is The Reflections of Narcissus, which is based on an imagined part of Oscar Wilde's life. So first of all, Artis, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: You're most welcome.
2: And, and all I that was just... As I said to you before, I was completely taken by your novel, which takes us into the world of Oscar Wilde around 1900. Um, And I wanted to start by asking you, uh, since you put a little note in the end of the book that you were reading in the research, in the course of the research, Oscar Wilde's letters from his prison, where he was imprisoned. Uh, to his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, or Bosie. And you made you put in the note um, the comment that someone in the library of the British Museum <laughs> made to you and said, uh, please, ma'am, do not weep upon our manuscript. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and tell me a little bit how you got interested in this story of reviving Oscar Wilde in fiction, who remains such a compelling figure for us today.
1: Well, I think it is a confluence of many things. Um, I think being a psychoanalyst, it goes without saying that one is interested in the human mind and the complexity of people's psyche. And there is no one more complex, in my uh, opinion, than Oscar Wilde. He's thought of as a kind of martyr to um, the then- uh, illegal, criminal activity of homosexuality in England at that time. But there was, um, in addition to that real martyrdom, uh, there was a a tremendous amount to his personality that people don't know about. So that was part of it. Another part was that I had been uh, editing an early film by a friend of mine, Michael Bergman, of the importance of being earnest. And Michael had uh, filmed that when he was very young and had, I think, no money or very little money. So there were big problems in the the production value and the continuity of the film. So I had spent maybe six months to eight months deeply involved with the importance of being earnest, and I developed a tremendous respect for Wilde in working with the text in that close way. I think the third thing, of course, was the year in which he died, 1900, which is one of the richest periods in cultural history. It was the year of the great exhibition in Paris of in 1900 that drew so many artists and thinkers and intellectuals to France at that time. And it was the year that Uh, Freud uh, published The Interpretation of Dreams. And I thought, what a shame that Oscar Wilde and Sigmund Freud didn't get to know each other, (laughs) because they would have really enjoyed each other's minds. And that was kind of the basis of the idea of writing the book, to get the two of them together.
2: Oh, that's, that, so that's, you kind of did them ultimate justice by bringing them back and bringing them together to have a conversation in Freud's office, ultimately, in Vienna. It,
1: yes, and it was a way to do a couple of things. I think to, uh, Freud is not popular now, and even 25 years ago when I wrote the book, he was not popular. Um But he wasn't such a bad fellow, you know, and he had some very good ideas, many of which have turned out to be true, some false. And I thought it would be fun to make him a very approachable and interesting man, which I think he was, and to have him interpret some of Wilde's self-destructiveness, which was so prevalent during Wilde's final years. And I, to do that, I had to really know Wilde as well as one can knows a person who is dead.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I read everything I could.
2: Wow. You, and, and that's it, what
1: that's what put me into the library. It was at the British Museum uh, manuscript room, and I had gotten permission to read the original uh, writings from Reading Jail. The uh, what became De Profundis when it was published, and mm-hmm. it was so moving. The, the The stationery was a dark blue stationery, and at the top it said Reading Jail. And he was only allowed one sheet a day, which he would fill in this very small handwriting, and then have it turned in to the censor. And then the next day he'd be given another sheet, and that's how that was written. Well, to hold that sheet of paper in my hand was so moving that I did start to cry, and that's when that fellow came over to me with his white gloves and his very uh, proper uniform and said, Madame, it is not permitted to weep upon the manuscripts, (laughs) and became one of the, the more interesting parts of that research.
2: And what do you uh, what do you think you were so moved by? I mean, when we imagine Wilde who was at the height of his fame before he was sentenced, and so he's now sitting in this horrid jail writing one page a day, whereas before he had really commanded the attention of much of the literary world.
1: I think what always has moved me about Wilde, he was an enormously kind man. And what he chose mm-hmm. to write is not full of hatred and anger and blame. It is it is a deeply moving, uh, thoughtful essay about uh, the human mind and the human condition. He was kind even in that place, which was mm-hmm. such an unkind place to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, when you were it, when you be, you became interested, you said first in working on the importance of being earnest, which I think is one of the great plays in the English language. And it, it's easy yes. to miss sometimes because it's so funny and there's mistaken identities and it's play on a name and the play on the word that you don't hear mm-hmm. the right word and the characters. And I remember seeing it when I was maybe 17. Strangely, I saw it performed by an all-male African-American cast of actors in Berlin, Germany in English. Oh, and I remember the Miss Prism character just being the most hilarious, um incredibly well dressed and sort of present on stage that cut through everybody in a way, but everybody else had their own place. And the importance of being earnest, there's something in Wilde that he put so much out there that was so obvious to us today, but that entertained people and kept something somewhat re- hidden. And there's a moment when, in your novel, he starts to talk to Freud, how he revealed himself to the public constantly and at the same time kept on playing with masks and disguises and allowed people not to see him.
1: Yes. And I think to this day he is Nazi. I mean, if you ask most people about Oscar Wilde, they'll say he yeah. was a gay man who lived in England. They don't know that he was married, deeply in love with his wife, that he had right. two sons, uh, his uh, grandson and great grandson uh, uh, survived. the uh, son and great and grandson of Cyril, no, Vivian Cyril was killed in World War One. Uh, they don't know about that. They don't know how, um, they they see him as a man about town and a gay man and a martyr, but they don't see, I don't think, see the full person. Now, there is a film called Wild, in which yeah. Stephen Fry plays Wild, and I think he did the same kind of research that I did. I mean, he, I think he kind of nailed it. And if anyone is interested in Wilde and they see the sort of other aspects of his personality, um, I think that's, I can recommend that film. It's lovely. Um, and I think Fry not only looks like Wilde, but I think he, he really captured him, and the screenplay is good. So I think I had seen that while I was writing, or shortly thereafter. But I had made a point of going to as many of the places as I could. I couldn't get to the jail, but I okay. did go to Ireland. I did go to Ireland, and I went to um, Oxford. I went to I did some of my research in the Bodleian Library there. I um, I went, of course, to Paris. I stayed in the hotel in which he died. They had really? reconstructed. They have reconstructed the room actually. Um, and put up some ter- terrible flocked wallpaper
0: so that one can
1: laugh at, laugh at it. But it was a little spooky. And I mm-hmm. went, um, I went, of course, to the Isola del Francesca, which I made up. I mean, I didn't make up the island. I made up that part of the story. The idea mm-hmm. when I was arriving was to have everything that was actually about wildlife. life as well researched and accurate and honest as I could write it, but then to have fun with the fantasy that he had a few more
2: years. I mean, you get details right. It's really incredible, artist, of what you get right because I've read the the some of the available biographies, Richard Elment's biography is, yes. is still, I think, actually, in my view, the best one, which, is, which has been somewhat superseded by new information, but Elman understands Wilde as both a person and a writer, and he connects the two, and he doesn't say there's a code, you can decode the place, but he really gives you very, even sometimes there's a space of one page, interpretations of the works. The other biographies really do just the historical facts, but don't imagine his complex psychology and why he was even driven to write. So when you... Went to these places. Um, some of the, the original places in England. The, the height of his fame. He was very and he was married. He was happy. He was in this beautiful home with Constance and loved his boys. And that part, I think you're right, is overshadowed by that he becomes the martyr for society. is judged harshly and lives in more or less poverty under an assumed name, disgraced in Paris. And I was. Interesting. Did you, did you feel you were like, we still owed something to Wilde to see him in a more complex way? So that's oh,
1: certainly. I go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I I felt just from what's the line in earnest. Uh, why did you go or why did you come in the ISIS pleasure pleasure, pleasure, what, what brings us anywhere? Um, just for the pleasure that the man has given us in his writing. Um, And there are, there are very complex writings there. There are his essays on society and on the art. Most people don't know those. There's his wonderful prose poems. Uh, I tried to uh, imitate one in the book with the great digger with um, large hands.
2: Beautiful Uh, prose poem. I was actually really amazed how, how much you captured this, spirit of wild of the kind of a strange fairy tale in the poor modern age, a beautiful like a native
1: he yeah. he he gave it so much, and I felt, yes, I owe this man something, but I'm also fascinated with this man. You know how could a man of <laughs> such talents and with such gifts die at forty? Can you mm-hmm. imagine what we would have had had he lived to eighty? But the British mm-hmm. prison system killed him. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, he, he was destroyed by what happened to him in prison, and um, so he lost at least, in my imagination, about forty years of wild. I couldn't write. I couldn't give him forty years, but I gave <laughs> him thirteen more.
2: <laughs> you gave him thirteen years more, and I have to say, you must have and. A lot of your life speaking to very, very witty and eloquent people because you captured some of Wilde's language, which is incredibly hard because he was famous for being the greatest wit, incredibly entertaining, charming, and as you said, kind, which is very hard. He was never cutting, never bitter, no. never dismissive. And I think that's something also people are almost we rarely see that someone has such an incredible sense of humor and irony without doing it at the expense of others. Yes,
1: my favorite story about him is, and I do not think it's apocryphal, I think it's a true story, is he was at a dinner party in Paris before his fall, and a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Wilde, I am known to be the ugliest woman in Paris. And he said, "In the world, Madame, in the world, <laughs> which when you think about, is it, a beautiful compliment to a woman right. who takes her pride in that way."
2: <laughs> right, right. Um, but he, he
1: did not. He did not hurt people, and yeah. um, he himself was hurt. But he didn't go about hurting people. I have only one. Oscar line that I'm terribly fond of in the book that I wrote, when he is recovering on the Isolo Francesco del Deserto in the Lagoon in Venice, which is a beautiful place, by the way, Um, his friend, uh, Timothy comes to him and wants him to write, and he's blocked. He can't write. And Timothy said, Well, maybe maybe if you stay here long enough, you know, you will be able to. And he says, Oh, for a muse of friars, which I thought was pretty
2: good. <laughs> yes.
1: But um but basically I um I was able to do the inversions pretty well after immersing myself in the work. Um the inversions, some of them are quite obvious, and you can do them. But um, other ones I took from his life, you know. Uh, yeah. There are many, many writings of his that that
2: are available. Oh, you okay? Yeah, yeah. And and let me so capture his language. You gave us you give us a real sense of his incredible grief over not being able to see his sons after his release from prison. And I think what you said earlier. Yeah, strikes would strike us as so simple today. You would think today in 2021, we wouldn't have a hard time acknowledging this man right. l- l- was in love with his wife, loved his two sons, and fell in love with Lord Alfred Douglas and Bozy and had a face with many other young men. And those things are one person. As, as If we cannot yeah. hold in our mind that possibility that this is one life and we still today, and I think... I want to get to this question. But I'm quite interested that Freud opens up this possibility for us to think of people as much more multifaceted and deeper and unknown to themselves. Um, and mm-hmm. you want to put you want to put them together. And I I really think it was it's really an an amazing achievement because our uh, Wilde is not a case study in this book. He's a live real character. He has not he's, and he has a. Um, what is his what do you what did you think you wanted to start with? What would be his attitude toward Freud, whose writing he could have encountered still while he was alive. Freud was already starting to publish in the late eighteen nineties. What would he have made of someone? You mean? Like that. Of oh, I like think Freud? he would have
1: been fascinated. I, I yeah. think that Wilde would have been fascin. He deeply appreciated intelligence. And mm-hmm. As in our era today, we, we see a lot that isn't intelligent around us. And I think he would have, I don't know that he would have agreed with Freud about mm-hmm. anything, but I think mm-hmm. the, the intricacy of Freud's mind would have interested him, and vice versa. I mean, yes. Freud wrote 26 volumes. <laughs> it takes yes. a while to read them all. And... um And Wilde, of course, wrote uh, many, many things besides the plays. And so as a writer, as an intellectual, as a man of the same era, and as a man interested in sexuality, I think the two of them would have gotten on.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm i not sure
1: they would have agreed.
2: And they don't need to agree. And I guess, and I I wonder, you're practicing psychoanalyst, uh, as a psychoanalyst, I assume, but I don't know. You don't look for agreement, right? I, I don't look for, for agreement. No, it's with, not. When, no, right? It's not the point no, to I actually like, understand. Yeah, go ahead to understand somebody in the in that way, as if we can both agree on who we are.
1: Well, I think that both the point of Freud's true psychoanalysis, the classical analysis, not. The versions we have today, but the true point and the point of Wilde as well was that people should become their true nature. It's not the analyst's position to judge right or wrong, or this is what you should do, or that's not what you should do. They're not. They're not uh, giving you advice. They're not. Uh, they're staying. They say they're there to help a person become who they need to be. Mm -hmm. And I think Wilde very much believed in that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this famous line that everybody quotes, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice in a way. But the, the weird thing is that society gives us a choice. I think Wilde would have felt something like, society gives us way too many choices to be not ourselves. Just perform a role.
1: exactly and and he he opposed that from the beginning. I think it did by the way, have very much to do with his upbringing and the traumas of his childhood. i mean I'm enough of a Freudian to really believe that he was a very traumatized, very damaged man when he came on the scene in London, and he struggled. To be right. himself, and I think, I think being married and having the children was part of who he was, and I think it was real and and all of that. But there was there were other parts to his nature which needed to be fulfilled, and where another person might have suppressed it, at that time he did not. But he and had examples from both parents of not suppressing you, themselves.
2: Yeah, and you lay that out. You say there's a. And his story is really, it's a very strange story and that his father was involved in a libel suit um, and disgraced the family in a certain way. And the mother's name, Esperanza, was Hope and was a very elegant woman who also wrote poetry, who also understood herself to be a kind of Irish nationalist to defend her country's honor. And then he goes to England. And this is a question that has, I think, Remained unanswered. to what I loved about your book that you don't answer the question, but you let us think about it. He throws himself into a libel suit uh, that w- with yes. the father of Rodolpho Douglas, the uh, the Marquis of Queensberry, who is just an, an, a vile, horrible person who no one should get into a suit with for no, for the reason alone not to dignify that. But Wilde gets into this, goes into this lawsuit, and with the and this is what people I think. People have two questions about this part. Why is he going into this lawsuit? And they blame Bosey, Lord Alfred Douglas, his younger lover or partner, for all of this, mm-hmm. as if Wilde couldn't make his own decisions. And why does he not flee the country which many people did who were accused of homosexuality and live out his life in exile in France? Well,
1: about the first part of it... I have a theory, which is a Freudian theory. It's called the repetition compulsion. Mm In the repetition compulsion, a person who is traumatized seeks to repeat the trauma and have it come out a different way. Now, when uh, Wilde's father um, initiated a libel suit, it ended in the family being ruined financially and in every other way. And I think that unconsciously, Wilde was repeating that trauma in the hope that it would um, somehow not ruin him and his family, but it, that he would be vindicated and justified, which it did not. The repetition compulsion, unfortunately, seldom works. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work for Wilde. As to why he didn't leave the country, I think that it probably has to do with... Um, His sons, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he was just so defeated at that moment that he couldn't imagine running away from who he was.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we,
1: as you say, we can think about it. What what would we do? You know, I've heard people say, "If so and so gets elected, I'm going to move to Canada." Well, we don't. Right.
2: Right. So, but it is—it is, it is so a form is for a while. I life. think you're right. It, it would have been running away also from himself, and not just from society. Yes. And I think this and a is a very hard-fought self. Yes. That he had established himself, and I think there was something maybe in his character. You said earlier his kindness, which people underestimate. He was mm-hmm. kind, and he assumed in some ways of people the best when people were really not at their best and all of the plays are about all of the plays ultimately i think about forgiveness and acceptance and a woman of no importance or an Mm -hmm. ideal husband they're about early betrayals much earlier usually 20 30 years ago and someone returns and reappears and causes a huge crisis in social relations because this person doesn't fit in unless they are forgiven and reintegrated (laughs) And the plays are really remarkable mm-hmm. because ultimately the plays work out. And the funny thing is when I, I read An Ideal an, an ideal Husband, I cry at the end. And it's just so moving to me <laughs> that the, there's some reconciliation possible between people who are set up not to forgive each other ever for these things that did to each other. So I wonder whether yes, Wilde I... in some way assumed in the wrong way that people ultimately be kind.
1: Well, I certainly think he wished it. Whether yeah. he assumed it or not, I don't know. He he did tend, he had, he, you know, he's paradoxical in that he always assumed the worst and the best at yeah. the same time about right. society. <laughs> and I, to me, it seemed like he, after making that gorgeous speech in the, um, in the trial about the love that dare not, uh, say its name. I think maybe he was believing <laughs> that things would turn out that things would not be so bad. But of course, right. they were. They were tragic.
2: And let me ask you about um, Eleanor, who's a character in your book. Who I yes. think becomes a very she's a very important figure. So sh- can you say a little bit about what gave you this the mental space to imagine her? who I assume is not based on a real person.
1: Well, of course, the the people who save Wilde from his own death and Mm -hmm. spirit him away are all fictional. Everything from that point on, those characters are fictional.
2: Um, We we just tell the listeners for one moment, Sorry, Wilde dies in 1900 in Paris in a hotel room that you visited, and just tell listeners for a moment where the novel starts from. From what happens at that moment when he dies.
1: when he dies, surrounded by the people who were really there, uh they leave the room and Eleonora, who is fictional, and Timothy Tyhard, who is fictional, spirit him away in a in the coffin, not to the Undertaker, but to Auguste Rodin, who was a friend of Wilde. And as and Rodin makes a an effigy of Wilde, and that is what is buried. And um the, the, the real Wilde is uh, taken by carriage to Venice. Now, in order for that to happen, Wilde didn't actually die at that moment, but just went into a coma. And um, the exact moment when he died is not known. So there was room there for two fictional char- characters to scurry the real characters away and let the transition take, uh, take place. So it's an effigy that's buried. And mm-hmm. and Wilde continues, is brought back to health and lives. Now Eleonora, I think, is a certain kind of woman. She's based on some of Wilde's women friends. Um, I can't think of their names just now, but there were women who helped Wilde after mm-hmm. his fall. There have always been women who love men who love men. Mm-hmm. And we have some names for those women these days that aren't aren't very complimentary. But there's something about falling in love with an unattainable object like that that is, can be very appealing to some women. And um, Eleonora is is really truly in love with Wilde. She's a little bit me. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Timothy is too. His mm-hmm. last name, Hart, is an anagram of my first name. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that Wilde might have had courageous friends who would mm-hmm. save him. Just th- that part, that's that's a whiff on my part. But if you look at uh, Wilde's life, he did have very strong uh, women friends who supported him even after he went to prison.
2: Not his wife. Yeah. His wife abandoned him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was actually really, you were just describing Eleanora and Timothy, both of whom risk a lot to save and rescue and scurry him away. So he's he's his his death is staged, which is very wildean and very theatrical go down, does his amazing job. And then what you just said, both of them don't quite know themselves and in a in a really beautiful way. It seemed to me that their love for Wilde blocked them from knowing themselves, although their love for Wilde also opened up a possibility for them to get to know themselves.
1: Well, I think that's a lovely insight. I, I you, think that it plays out a bit in the book, but I don't think I was conscious of
2: it. But you know what I mean, how Eleanor sort of, she, her love for Wilde makes her do these things which make the plot of the book. He hides wild, he, he goes to Venice, he recovers, and he then tries to figure out, can he still be, he can never be known again. It would be a huge scandal. He, the one group of people he really despises are journalists who feed off yes. the scandals of others and make money off that and made money off his place when they were good and made money off his trial when he went to prison. And Eleanor does a lot to to keep him in this sort of sense of very close friendship and deep love that is not reciprocated and then finds a way to turn this love into something deeper and becomes herself. And I love this transformation of her when you see her in Vienna in a different outfit and she now does something else. And she's really, it's something I think for our listeners to read this book just for her, what happens to her. In these exchanges with both Wilde and Freud, two men that she's fascinated by, inspired by, but they're somewhat stay out of reach. And I think the staying out of reach was for her, as you said earlier, a kind of a way to stay safe in herself.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I have I've given most of the credit, I think, to Freud. I think it's a pretty good analysis that he does of her. But um, clearly, her love of Wild is part of that transformation, too. And um, it gives her a way to be closer to Wild. And let me ask you
2: something. Possible. Much closer to Wild and because she becomes herself. And <laughs> and they're able to have a, a, a much deeper and different friendship. She is because she realizes who she is, which she didn't. And that's what I meant. The love for Wilde in a certain way blinded her to something. When you give this credit to Freud, I'm curious as a practicing psychoanalyst, what you would say, how much does the analyst actually do and how much does the patient do?
1: Well, it looks like the patient does it all because the analyst is largely quiet. Mm -hmm. And One of my teachers had a wonderful phrase. He called it the, I think it was the unifying interpretation, right? It's not quite it. But um, the idea is that if the analyst listens long enough and deeply enough with full attention, he begins to see the outline of the unconscious forces that are causing a person to act in a particular way. And he interprets that. And when the unconscious becomes conscious, it's a freeing moment for the client. Now, obviously, in old school psychoanalysis, where you came five or six times a week, Freud complained about the Sunday crust that formed over the work. Um, And you paid a great great deal of money for this. And you showed up every day. And you lay there. And you... uh, you know, free associated with very little feedback. It really does look like it is the analyst who's doing the work, and they are.
0: I mean, mm-hmm. just showing
1: up. Uh, what would he? I would say that's happened. Anyhow, he, the the analyst, whether it's a male or female, has to bide their time, and they have to be prudent and patient. They have to wait until the right moment when the material is just about available and then make the interpretation. And I was trying to do that. Now, of course, it's much condensed in the book because mm-hmm. you can't have Eleonora going for four years at six times a week to get to mm-hmm. the interpretation. It would be mm-hmm. uh, an enormous uh, uh, right. volume. <laughs> but But I was trying to allow the, at the time I wrote it, Modern Reader, I have a sense of what goes on in a in psychoanalysis, because it's quite a mystery to people, especially today, mm-hmm. nobody even knows what it is.
2: Right. But right. it's it's
1: an it's enormously hard work on both parties' part.
2: And and when this moment, or one is probably many moments, I assume, when this moment happened, this kind of ringing moment for the client when they realize, let's yes. say in the. Repetition compulsion for a while, he repeats a tragic, terrible thing in his family history by going exactly down mm-hmm. the same route. And right. it, once the, the, the client, the analisome, realizes I'm actually doing something that was predetermined or overdetermined by my childhood trauma, that I had, mm-hmm. where I was not able to intervene, to respond, to help. It's actually, mm-hmm. I just... For the contemporary world, I just watched, which is quite interesting, um, the movie about Serena Williams and Venus Williams, the great tennis players, and their father tries to undo a childhood trauma where he couldn't, where his father didn't help him, and said, I'm going to be different. It's a very moving film, actually, because the father was, he was in a racial incident as a child, and his father didn't help him, and he said, this will never happen to my daughters. Mm -hmm. And so, the motivation of one of those overbearing tennis parents is not, "I want to make you successful and ambitious, but I'm going to be there for you when my father failed me but when yes. the patient gets this praying moment there is a moment and when Wilde talks with Freud in your book that Wilde is a little bit cautious because he also is afraid, but that is also who I am this is if I uncover uh-huh. this about myself, maybe I know too much, and the other character you have in the book, in addition to Rodin, and while you have the poet Rilke, who I happen to spend a lot of time translating and reading, and Rilke quite famously said when he actually did meet Freud, because Lou Andreas-Salomé introduced the two, and he said, "I don't want to go into psychoanalysis; it'll chase away all my demons, but it may touch all the angels too." So yes. he was essentially he would, lo- he would lose the source of himself or inspiration or creativity.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a terrible fear of people entering into psychoanalysis, particularly creative people. And I think it's a, I think it's something that Freud overlooked. If you look at his writing, there, there's very he writes a lot about artists and art, mm. but he doesn't mm-hmm. write about the enormous importance of the creative process to a creative individual, and that a person who is uh, thwarted and can't do their art, often falls neurotically ill. So there's a lot of fear when people enter analysis that if they become conscious of their unconscious, their muse will flee and they won't be able to write or dance or sing or paint or whatever it is that they do. In fact, the opposite happens in my experience. Now, in Wilde's case, his interpretation is about um the repetition compulsion of the libel suit. You can bet that if Wilde continued to live, he would not enter another libel suit because he right. would have been conscious now of what he was doing. And that is mm-hmm. more often the case. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the fact that he could not save his little sisters who died, all three of them died, uh, mm-hmm. when he was a young woman, I think that's why I chose the death that I gave him in, in that he is saving children at the time he died. Right. And I think that's a repetition compulsion too and perhaps one that he's not aware of but he would choose anyhow because of who he was.
2: Mm-hmm. hmm You but know... Um, that actually was really moving where he, where he, at the end, he says a sentence in your book where he writes a letter to somebody who says, take care of these children. They 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 will not have parents. I don't know their relations. They're not my children and not your children. But children, all children are everybody's children.
1: All children it's are the children
2: of all. The children of all. It's a very wildly sentiment to me that in some ways that that for children, this love must be shared and collective or universal. It cannot be just yeah. my own child. is my child because I think that's, to me, it, 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 it sounded very Freudian in a way to say not your child is yours. It's more the child is a child that belongs to all. All. Oh. Ber- versus a parent who wants to make this is my particular child who has this significance to me, which is probably overwhelming for the child and on every level. Yes. So it's a kind of and opening. thing. Is- yeah
1: it's what I believe Wilde would have thought. It is what I believe. I, you know, I I think children um, are our future and all of the children need to be nurtured and cared for for all of our futures and their futures. But I don't think it's a particularly American idea. An American idea is my kids and, you know, get them to school and and have them be successes and and make me proud. I think that's a more American kind of path to go down. So I was I was glad to find that in Wiles. He didn't say that, I said that. But
2: right. that I found
1: that character in him. <laughs> right. I found right. That,
2: right.
1: that piece but, of him.
2: <laughs> and if you, if we stay for a moment with um with Freud. As an analyst, you had to imagine Freud, which is also a a formidable task, how he was, and he comes off as um, being somewhat bemused sometimes, not easily flappable, although there's a moment you introduce where Wilde maybe unconsciously introduces something into their meeting that unsettles Freud for a moment, which I think gives us a sense even Freud is not the master of all discourse. Mm -hmm. And I think that's no. important that psychoanalysis is not the method to decode meaning, but to actually activate language or to enrich it or listen more deeply.
1: I, I think that's right. I I think Freud had a great love of language and, um, and a great love of poetry and, and literature. He was um, a, a deeply cultured man, um, but... I think that people tend to see Freud as kind of stoic and Mm -hmm. um, without a great deal of humor. And um, and I think that comes from later psychoanalysts. I don't think it was Freud. (laughs) I think Freud was a pretty, you know, I mean, he he had his, there's a wonderful story of uh, Freud um, walking in the park one day. And uh, someone came up to him and gave him a gift and said, I've been meaning to give this to you, and I see you, so I'm, I'm going to give it to you, and Freud thanked him. And and, and the friend who was walking with said, oh, uh, isn't that nice, that fellow came and gave you the gift, and Freud said, now I have to get him one. <laughs> 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 so human, you know?
2: <laughs> That's funny, actually, uh, right? That's right. That's yeah. Yeah. The philosopher Jacques Derrida, who I happened to know when I was studying, he was always very, he was a very kind person to me, and he always said, "Oh, Lee, be sure you always pay for dinner, especially if you don't like the people." <laughs> That's
1: right.
2: That's
1: right. I mean, I, I tried to put, I tried to put Freud, the humanity into Freud that, that I find in in him. You know, when I was a young woman, I was very, um, uh, let's say, complicated or if we're being a little less kind, very neurotic. And I, um, you know, sort of ran away from my home. I left Ohio to come to New York City and try to find myself. It was very uh, complicated in my dealings with people, maybe not very nice. And I um, picked up um, Freud's uh, work at one point. I'm trying to think which one it was. I think it was I'm thinking ah it was the um uh, paper on lay analysis. hmm And I read it and I thought this man could understand me. It was the first time I ever felt understood. And I huh. thought this is this this is what I have to to, to pursue. And so I but, and continue to read Freud, and then take training and become a psychoanalyst myself. And one never gets to the end of it. But um, I think it was the fact that he was so human, that he could reach mm-hmm. across a century and, and connect to a to a crazy girl in the in Greenwich Village, you know, who's in her twenties. It's and, and, so
2: and, that. And, and that essay. I think that essay is Freud's um, defense of non-medical doctors to become analysts, right? Yes. So it's kind of an yes. opening, and Freud famously we know that uh, women became analysts, um, guided by Freud. And in your in your that like I, w- I would love to hear what you made of that. That it, that that book spoke to you at that age so much.
1: Well, I I just felt like the complexity with which he was speaking connected to the complexity that I was feeling. And of course, he says in that essay that the work of psychoanalysis should be the work of poets and artists and writers, not doctors. Uh, And that spoke to me, too, because I at the time was in the theater and I was struggling to understand myself as an artist. I wanted to be a writer and didn't know how to go about that. So there was a sense that this, this man appreciated the minds of creative people. And so that that really said you you must go down this road. You must find out who you are. And let's see, three psychoanalyses later, I'm working on it.
2: <laughs> that seems good. Uh, and you so you have a ways to go. You, as you said, it's infinite but three psychoanalyses. Oh. <laughs> I I, wonder, I had I, an old,
1: I had an old Oh, the supervisor once and I he was in his nineties. And I said to him, Oh, do we ever, ever get done? And he said, No, we never get done, but we get very tired.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <funny. laughs> really uh, the, the human about, mind is endless. About the complexity. Like I just want to go back to one thing I find really interesting because it connects to yeah. wild uh, so you said you you had a certain you came from Ohio to New York with a certain complexity, you wanted to be an artist, find yourself, and you said if it were unkind, you would say you were neurotic. I have a just a question uh-huh. whether psychoanalysis is not meant to reduce or eliminate this complexity. And I think that touches on the question you said earlier that creative people are worried it's gonna destroy their muse or their inspiration. Uh-huh. And in today's culture, we live very much right now that a lot of people, I think, are struggling with a lot of things. And sometimes they're told yeah. you can get rid of these struggles. You can figure out a way, sort of trick yourself or find a pattern or teach yourself how, and some of it is probably effective, I'm sure. And some things are probably not like self destructive behaviors. But it doesn't sound like what Freud. And psychoanalysis did used to say, you can get rid of this complexity, you simplify yourself. No. So
0: just quite the opposite. What is the,
2: yeah, what's the opposite of complexity? It's not simplification, right, in ourselves. It's not, oh, I'm actually obs- obsessive or I'm overthinking, because that's what people tend to say, oh, you're overthinking it, you are just stop doing it. But that's not the goal of psychoanalysis, the way I understand it. No, I don't
1: think, I don't think there is anything. I don't. I think it's an oxymoron. I don't think you can overthink anything. I think mean, you can think a lot and maybe think yourself into a muddle, but you you haven't overthought it. You just thought a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think psychoanalysis is a celebration of the complexity of the human mind. There's the mm-hmm. conscious mind, which we're all aware of, and there's all our struggles and difficulties and. Troubles, which we're all aware of, and then this all unconscious, busily doing its own scripts and its own ideas that we don't even know is there. And so you're actually becoming, if you if you engage in psychoanalysis, you actually become more complex, but you become more comfortable with complexity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you mentioned Rilke.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, Ril- Rilke, um, if I don't, I don't know his work very well. I'm not a, a scholar at all of either poetry or Rilke in particular. But there's a change in his work that was supposed to have occurred after he was the secretary to Rodin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And. It's said that he began to look at objects in a different way, and that's reflected in his poetry. I don't know if you agree, but I have read that. Yes. And I think I think what I wrote in the Rilke chapter, when Rilke is watching Rodin make the, the head of a man, which is, in my imagination, Wild's head, um, he's changing. He's beginning to see that even the simplest objects, are complex, yeah. and that, that's a beautiful thing.
2: And I and, think the chain. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, anyhow, I was trying to to concretize the scene. I mean, obviously, if Rilke spent time with Rodin, he saw him make a lot of objects. But so I, I wrote the chapter to to show how that might affect the bullet. Um, but also informed by my belief, I think most psychoanalysts' believe that complexity is a beautiful thing. And it can be thought, you can look at a stone, and if you look at it long enough, it will start to talk to you. It will start to tell you it's history and how beautiful it is and how it can be used and how it was used and how it's been neglected and how it's been uncovered. And (laughs) so... I I think that's what drew me to the Freudian way of thinking when I was young. And I think it would have attracted Wilde.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the fact that Wilde uses a slightly, there's humor, but not all the stories are humorous. But there's this, or the picture of Dorian Ray, which has become a kind of paradigm for our Mm -hmm. world. How, you know, surface beauty versus interior you know uh, corruption or something like that mm-hmm. he actually didn't settle any of these things for us i think he, he's saying there's this kind of complexity in us we and we also would maybe make a big mistake to try to eliminate it to try to yeah. gloss it over um it's interesting that you said you if you would a psychoanalyst you could put a stone i just saw the Uh, At the Metropolitan Opera, they have a new opera by the playwright Sarah Rule and uh, Matthew Ocon's opera about Eurydice. So the woman who is in the underworld who Orpheus tries to return, and three of the characters in this opera, and you would love this, are stones. They are big stone, little stone, oh, and, loud stone. Yes, I and would they're love stone. <laughs> and I think a little bit is, of course, because the idea is that Orpheus or art or music can bring the stones to weep or respond to us, something like that. So she actually lets the stones speak. They have a really important role. They're very funny and they're the chorus in this opera. And I think what you're saying is that also psychoanalysis opens up the fact that life has much more meaning than we think. It's much more meaningful in a certain way. We can attribute that meaning. Rilke ultimately, the shift you're describing, he ultimately sees his task after Rodin. He works for Rodin, for, but then he gets fired, which is also pretty entertaining and funny. And Rilke leaps within one afternoon and says, of course, I have to leave. I'm in the way of a great artist. Rilke then starts to, he hopes that one could live a life where you could find significance or meaning or, yeah, meaning for you, not significance maybe for you everywhere. Like you said, in a stone, it speaks to
1: yes. you.
2: And yes. that's an enrichment mm-hmm. form. And that's that's a deeper way of living rather than a confused way of living, not more complicated mm-hmm. and people.
1: Well, also, also, I think in our current age, because we do suffer every day in various ways, I think a lot of emphasis is on relief from that suffering, and so people do take the medications and they want the quick therapies and they want the advice, all of which help in the moment. But I think that ultimately it doesn't resolve anything. Those problems come back the next day, and psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. El- well, Freud was kind of a pessimist in a way. A famous um, line of his. I'll probably misquote it slightly, but it's: psychoanalysis can cure neurotic misery, so that people can experience the everyday unhappiness of life. <laughs> now that's a pretty pessimistic statement, and it's why I have sprinkled my work with a little Buddhism after after my Freudian training. Uh, because uh Buddha actually is a little bit more optimistic about dealing with our troubles. Um but the the um the idea that we can quickly solve our problems by taking this pillar, that pillar, get this advice or that advice is unfortunately promoted and sold in our culture. Actually when we go deeper into our problems, when we accept the the Profound contradictions of our mind. Our life gets a little better.
2: <laughs> and better here means not. It's and I think this is what Freud says that we can experience the unhappiness of life better for him meant not a shallow glossing over of no. who we are actually. Yeah. There's a I mean, the analysis
1: right. is there, the problems are there, but they're much more interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. And 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 if you, if you look, you are back on your book, and I was I was just so happy that I got you to reread your own book. How was that experience for you? How <laughs> how do you think you did? You think you ultimately did justice to uh, Wild, which I think the book is a little bit of a. Um, it has a very for me, it was it it was kind of a place to hold his memory in a different way. As we started out by saying today, while this still so misunderstood. I actually think, to be honest with you, I think Wilder's still on trial half the time. I've been on events where people yeah. become quite determined to say, well, he shouldn't have done this, or this was wrong, or ultimately that bosey that corrupted him. And I'm thinking, are we still putting him on trial today? <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: so when you when you reread it, how was you? Yeah, go ahead. How was your experience of rereading it?
1: Well, it was very difficult at first. I hadn't opened it in twenty five years, and I was terrified. It was going to be awful. <laughs> um, but I, I, kind of liked it. I mean, I thought, oh, I wrote that. That was good. Um, and I think that was because of the level of the research. I did research the book for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you immerse yourself in any subject for a period of time, some truths are going to emerge from that. And so I was, I was pleased. I, I was pleased that I wrote a historical novel. My other novels are not. Um, because it holds up in the sense mm-hmm. that it doesn't age, and mm-hmm. so I was kind of oh good it, it maybe it'll still be kicking around in a few years um the the thing that amused me was, I don't know if you noticed the quotes on the back of the book, but um one of the quotes is all, all of the quotes are by fictional characters except the and 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 then wild's quote is is fictional um but they the fictional character Timothy Tyhardt, uh, on the back of the book, his quote is a page turner. This is a message here for everyone. 100 years from now, this will be the definitive biography of Oscar Wilde, the one that is most beloved and most believed. That is my hope. <laughs> that is my hope. That,
2: that is, my hope is that...
1: that um... Go ahead.
2: No, 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 your hope is, go ahead, yes. Your... <laughs>
1: The the idea is that that we should we should see Wilde as a human Mm -hmm. being who who loved and suffered in amazing ways and his trial is long over long over and it's time to love him I love him
2: Yeah 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 yeah. and I think it's a it's a great quote that you said he's in a hundred years we will be remembered Uh, he we will remember him in a new way and I think this is what I found so remarkable about your novel, because as I said, I've read um, a lot of the biographies and there's a recent biography, which I, I, I got I'm not that interested in it because it's just a plain historical enumeration of all the things that happened in his life, but it doesn't give you any insight, I think mm-hmm. beyond much beyond that. But your novel really gives you a sense, how could we think of Wilde today, which is a big shift if we shift yeah. our memory, our cultural memory of this iconic figure some other things may also open up, which we, that's what I think we're still in a funny oh, yeah. way stuck as if we're still judging him from the Victorian perspective.
1: Yes. And I love the irony that he loved Queen Victoria.
2: Oh, he loved it. In, in his book really it true. says he's hes the only woman I could have been happy with. I loved our little queen, yes. And
1: <laughs> <Sure. laughs> it is really true. He wept when she does. Yes. And yet she was the one who signed the the paper that put him in prison. So these ironies, these layers of a person, I think are um to both and and Freud. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well um Arlith, I wanna thank you for writing this beautiful book, um, The Reflections of Narcissus, The Death and Further Adventures of Oscar Wilde. So that novel is available um, wherever people get their novels. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that Amazon's your best bet. Yeah, exactly. That's mostly Amazon. So um, the reflections of narcissists. And um, I really just want to thank you for also having this very uh witty exposition of psychoanalysis as you said in a few pages which you couldn't follow a real analysis which would take years or so or be infinite mm-hmm. but you give us a sense of what that something can happen which is rather remarkable between two people having a conversation yep. or two people listen
1: alone in a room day after day and and, and listening and to
2: one another yeah and i think for me this is always just a Such a powerful fact that actually we don't look at—we don't have to look at dramatic historical events, lots of action taking place. That something incredible can happen between two people talking. That's right, and I I think
1: uh, this has been an enormous pleasure for me to talk with the book, as I uh, as I uh, mentioned uh, when you first contacted me. I I don't promote my books. I just put. I think you were appalled at this idea. I, I just write them, and then I see what
2: happens. I was <laughs> appalled. You said books should come be in the world and then make their own way. And I was appalled. I said no. Like children, they need to be fostered <laughs> right. and nourished and set on their path and supported and promoted. <laughs> so, and part of that's what I want to do with this book. I uh, party for listeners to give them. And then there's so much written about Oscar Wilde. There's so many critical studies. There's so many reimagining. so many plays. But this is a really exceptional retelling, The reflection of Narcissus. Well, I,
1: Re- I wrote it for someone like yourself, Ulrich, someone who would uh, recognize the truth of it and also the fiction of it. <laughs> and, yeah. and um, yeah. you know, it was a delight for me to, to have it discovered by you.
2: Oh uh, Well, thank you so much for writing it. And... Um, uh, you know, I guess in today's in 2021, everybody, would, what people would help for, it'll become a Netflix series or something like that. But I love it as a book.
0: Thank you for listening to an episode of Think About It, Ardeth Ashley's novel, The Return of the Century, is now available from Warbler Press. So the title is now The Return of the Century, which is a novel we've discussed in this episode, and it has just been published at Warbler Press, where I'm also editorial director. I'm just thrilled that this book will now be available to a far wider audience. Thank you again for listening and tuning in.